My name is Kirk Lang, and I'm a jewelry and metal artist living in Seattle, Washington. Welcome to Cut the Craft. It's funny what kind of reels you back in and gets you, like, sparks you again and kind of get back in it. So. Is it landing a double kick flick? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> I'm sorry, but, like, I was trying to theme... Every question I could think of had to do with skateboarding for your interview because I just like that you skate. That would be and, really funny. And Amy helped me tone it down. She was just like, well, like, you know, Brian, I get it. But what exactly does that have to do with like his craft? And I was like, that right. remains to be seen. Because I think bearings are a, um, a microcosmic cosmos there you go their own tiny little solar system i didn't think of it that way but you're right it has all the major components right yeah (laughs) i was hoping you would agree (laughs) full circle yep and it's just a black hole at the middle of it (laughs) exactly (laughs) well welcome to cut the craft everybody i'm brian and i'm amy and we are here with kirk lang a, a jewelry and metal artist working out of the Seattle, Washington area. Did I get that right? You did. Yes. All right. <laughs> Good job. Kirk, welcome to the show. I'm super happy to be here. Uh, thank you both so much for inviting me. Yeah, we're happy to have you on. So Kirk, for someone unfamiliar with your jewelry making and metalworking, can you describe what exactly you make? I, I make both wearable and sculptural metal objects that uh, can range in size uh, from something as small as, you know, a ring all the way up to uh, life size. And uh, both the wearable and sculptural pieces I create are inspired by astronomy and sp- space exploration and at times are even kinetic. Hmm. So are there other people in <laughs> in your field doing that? Like, is that, that sounds pretty unique. I, when I was in uh, undergrad, I started exploring, um, thinking about astronomy and uh, space and implementing that in my work. And mm-hmm. I was also researching a lot of that time and I didn't really come across anyone doing it. Mm-hmm. So since then, you know, I try and keep tabs, I guess, when I, you know, come across someone that may be doing something in a similar vein. But I will say that I think more recently, like the last five or six years, space in general has become really popular again. And I'm mm-hmm. starting to see it uh, resurface and or surface for the first time in people's work, which is exciting. It's cool to see. I feel like there's maybe like a, I don't know, like a, a movement starting or something that not, you know, not necessarily intentionally, but it's just one of the topics I think that um, people see in their newsfeed and stuff um, mm-hmm. with all the space exploration. So, um, and then in terms of kinetic pieces or kinetic artists, I do come across people um, here and there that make kinetic work. And I feel like it's kind of a group, at least when I first started making it, that it's almost like, you know, you work, you make mechanical things, this person makes mechanical things. So like, you're kind of like instantly, you instantly can relate to one another in terms of like thought process and how you might build something. Mm. Um, But within that, there's also a huge range too. And I can go into depth on that, but I don't know if that's, if we want to go there quite yet. (laughs) <laughs> I, I think I do think people might want to hear just a little bit more of what you mean in terms of like kinetic work because hmm. um, I know I've watched some of the videos that yeah, are on your yeah. website and other places so I feel like I have somewhat of an idea but for someone who has you know no idea and they're just hearing about like 
astronomy inspired jewelry for the first time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that would be helpful. Um, okay, so maybe like an oversimplification would be, you know, essentially making something that moves or transforms from one thing to another. So, mm-hmm. you know, hinges, uh, think of, you know, gears, pulleys, um, you know, on a jewelry scale, it's hard to implement a lot of that. But, you know, when you do sculptural pieces, it's a lot easier. But even uh, on a jewelry scale, you can generate some movement in smaller pieces. Um, so, yeah, I think that's just kind of, it's part of the uh, making process. And I think it, um, I think it's just some, it's like a way that uh, each individual artist might think, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I see things in motion in my head. So even when I make objects that don't move, like in my head, it's like kind of moving the way it's constructed oh. or there's some element of like tension in there. So it's like, it's not moving, but there is like potential energy or something. Oh, oh interesting. cool. That's that super interesting. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love your use of a uh, potential, you know, versus like kinetic energy. I think that's a super cool way to describe that. Mm-hmm. Like it's got like, it's kind of like makes it almost vibrate visually when you're looking at it. Cause there's like something pent up in there. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like, I don't know if it's hidden, you know, to the viewer, but I know it's there and that's enough for me oftentimes. But I think, you know, if you spend some time studying the piece and, if you are familiar with metal as a material and kind of how it acts, then you can start. I'm, I'm thinking of like a couple particular pieces right now in my head, but um, yeah, I think you, if you study it long enough, you can see those little details and they'll reveal themselves. Hmm. So I, so let's do a deep dive into your fascination with astronomy, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> how, how it influences what you're making. Like why, why are you so, yeah, why are you so interested in that? And how, how does it show up? Well, I guess the, the history of it would be, it's funny. I feel like the first time I had an experience with astronomy, uh, and at the time it, it didn't really, it was really exciting, but it didn't kind of hit me the same way as later on, um, was in sixth grade camp. I think mm-hmm. a counselor had a telescope set up and it was pointed oh, cool. at Saturn. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you've ever seen Saturn through a telescope, it's it's mind blowing. And what's funny is even now I've seen it hundreds of times, if not more, like thousands. And it uh, it's every time I look at it, it's still just as exciting as the first time. Oh wow! Because um, it just doesn't seem real. You know, you look in the sky and you just at the night sky and you see stars generally. But when you focus in on an actual object, like a physical object mm-hmm. that you can relate to in terms of like it's you know, a star is, you know, shining light, but a planet is a sphere and -hmm. it doesn't seem in a way natural, right? Because it's like this perfect sphere out in this black backdrop of space. Mm -hmm. uh, And then it has these perfect rings around it. Um, And yeah, it just was a pretty moving experience when I first saw that. And then later on, I would say in college, I started exploring it, um, astronomy, like reading about it a lot more. And I, uh, I decided to make my thesis work based off of the nine planets. Well, at the time, the nine planets, now there's technically eight, right? Pluto's been demoted, but, um, yeah, really disappointed about that still. I know. Yeah. (laughs) R.I.P. Pluto. (laughs) We dedicate this episode to you. Yeah. Yeah. Pluto. (laughs) There we go. Yeah. Um, but uh, so at that time, uh, yeah, I started, 
I started reading a lot about it. I also was reading about um, Greek mythology and Roman mythology, and I realized there was a strong connection between the two, even in naming of the planets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started making these objects that kind of had, uh, the, like the conceptual element was derived a little bit from Greek mythology, whereas the physical like presence of the object or the, the visual of it was um, maybe taking cues from like the objects themselves, like photos of the planets and what I saw, you know, in our solar system. Mm -hmm. So I think at that point I really got immersed in it and I got really, really excited about it. And then I bought my first telescope and then it just took off from there because then I was, you know, I had the firsthand experience of looking out into space and locating these objects myself. And, uh, and I think once you make that connection, like you're actually looking at it in, real time if that even mm-hmm. makes sense because it's technically when you look into space it's not it's like it's delayed it's time in the past yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um yes then you start getting in all these like there's just lots of um stuff to mine from there and think about and uh things that find their way into the work so i'd say that's when it um yeah those three things really the first time i saw saturn and then in college and then my first telescope I think those are like the markers for me that really, really, really got me going. One of the reasons I was so drawn to your work is because I love space as well. I definitely don't experience, I, you know, I don't have a telescope or anything. It's very much from a, you know, looking at pictures of like Hubble deep space and stuff mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just thinking about how tiny I am. Right. I, I think there's like a strange comfort in that. And I think maybe some people uh, it feels the opposite, like uncomfortable. Like you're mm-hmm. once once I realize, like I'm just this, essentially like a particle on a planet, and there's so much space out there. Um, I don't know. There's something like really. It's almost spiritual, honestly. Uh, mm-hmm. Can make you just. It's like a Zen moment or something. You can just kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it uh, allows me to kind of relax and unwind at night when I look through my telescope because it's so peaceful mm-hmm. and usually it's really quiet outside. Not so much in the city, but if you get out of the city, then, you know, it's just this like really peaceful experience. Mm-hmm. How, how much time do you spend, you know, looking out yourself through a telescope? And generally, are you going out there with an intent of like, okay, I want to look at this because I'm work, I have this piece in mind or something? Or is it most of the time you're going out there for personal reasons and that inspirational side just kind of happens? I would say it's all of the above and it really depends. Um, I oftentimes I actually just go in my backyard cause it's, it's easier. Um, you know, I live in, uh, near a city, so it's the light pollution is not the best, but there's, there's workarounds. Uh, one thing that I've been doing recently that, um, really helps with the light pollution. Cause that, that really dims like what you can see in terms of like nebulas and objects like that. Um, but if you hook a camera up to your telescope, a camera can, you know, record like a long exposure. Mm -hmm. So what you can do is um, you can put like a filter on the back of your scope that helps with light pollution. And then you can take a long exposure through your camera. And then on the back of your camera on the LCD screen, uh, it can see things you can't. So if you have the coordinates right and you take a photograph, you can still see the nebulas. They're black and white, but they're, it's a way of kind of cutting through all this light pollution. What? Yeah. It's pretty mind blowing. It's it's amazing. So that's what, you know, uh, I do here. And sometimes, you know, I'm not taking photographs either. I'm just looking out. The planets are really bright, so you can see those anywhere. Um, But 
in terms of if I want to get like there's a celestial event or something specific happening uh, that I want to record, um, then I will kind of plan around that and make a trip out to a place where I think uh, the conditions are good. Um, that's a lot harder now with a kid, but uh, before that I was doing that, I feel like more. <laughs> um, and, uh, but yeah, you, you can find, if you can find a good place to record whatever event's about to happen, um, you can get really incredible um, photographs. And, and again, that's if you want to take photographs, you can also just experience it without doing that. Um, so it just mm -hmm. depends. It's kind of, I don't have a plan all the time. Um, I just, I just enjoy, I just go with, I guess, whatever I feel like doing at that moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I bet your kid has like the coolest ceiling in his bedroom ever with like a bunch of glow stars. <laughs> he does have glow stars, you're right. <laughs> that is, uh, I guess every kid has a theme, right? So his was, is space. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. The second season of North Bennett Street School's In the Making virtual event series launched this fall. Join them on Thursday, October 14th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time in conversation with textile designers Pilgrim Waters, who work directly with Nepalese and Indian artisans. To register for this free event, visit nbss.edu slash ITM. Pocosin Arts School of Fine Craft near the Outer Banks of North Carolina invites you to register for their online annual benefit auction, where you can bid on artwork from your favorite craft artists. If you're more interested in making, however, you can join Pocosin Arts to refine your skills at home by signing up for an interactive online workshop taught by world-class instructors in a variety of media. They're also currently accepting spring residency applications, offering you five months to focus on your creative practice in their studios. To learn more about these opportunities and more, visit pocosinarts.org. Are you a person who's into astrology? And my other question is, have you ever seen a UFO? Oh. Hmm. Maybe you don't want to answer that. I don't know. You don't <laughs> <laughs> I just thought of it. No, no. That's a, it's a good, that's a curveball for me. But I would mm -hmm. say... Astrology, uh, not so much, mm -hmm. but UFO, you know, I, I have seen objects that when I, I first see them, I think, I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. Like I've literally taken photographs when it's like pitch black at night through mm -hmm. my scope and I don't even know what it's pointed at. And I just mm -hmm. do it because if you get the exposure right, then you see, you can get really clear results in that part of the sky. And, and one time... Um, I photographed a comet and I didn't even know there was a comet. What? Um, oh, wow. Yeah. In the night sky. And what was really funny was I photographed it. And then I think it was like later that day or the next day, that was the first like news bite that, uh, I, I read about this particular comet. Huh. And, um, and that was like, so, so I photographed it, I think when, the very first people were photographing it. So oh, wow. it, it didn't even have a name. I don't, I don't even know if it had a name at that point or maybe it did, but I, I didn't know it. So huh. in a way it's a UFO, but yeah. you know, later <laughs> yeah. I found out it's a comet. <laughs> That's really fun yeah. though. You, you just like happened to catch it then and you didn't have any idea. 
Exactly. And it wasn't yeah. even, it was kind of in the background of the image. It mm -hmm. was because there was a mountainscape that I captured mm -hmm. and it was like just above that horizon. And I had zoomed in on the image. And then, um, do you guys ever, do you, have you ever played badminton? Oh, have I? <laughs> a loaded question. Wow. That is my favorite activity. Oh, really? Oh, oh wow. Yeah, I love it. Okay. So <laughs> when I was scanning the image, I came across what looked like a birdie, right? Uh -huh. And that was the comet, but it had that same shape. And oh, wow. I just didn't, I was totally perplexed. Like I thought comets would have these long tails, which they often do. But um, this one, I don't know, for whatever reason, uh, it wasn't a long tail. It was just, you could see, like, it had these, like, almost, like, wings coming off each side. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's really, really inspiring and incredible to witness that. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and that makes me really like that comment. <laughs> so when you see things like that, does that influence what you're making at the time? Like, those sort of unexpected observations? You know, sometimes they do. That one, I can't say in particular did, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. It's not, I don't, I don't have like a, like I said before, a plan when I'm photographing things mm -hmm. or looking through the scope. So yeah, it's almost just, I go about whatever it is I'm doing, you know, mm -hmm. like my daily life and, um, and follow my interests and stuff. And then every once in a while, it's just like those moments you make these like odd connections that Mm -hmm. intrigue you and I, I kind of have this it's not like a rule or anything but I do realize that I get ideas that stick in my head and and if they stick in there for like a week or so sometimes they'll fade and then sometimes it'll last a month or two and then I start thinking about should I make a piece like related to that and then mm. um, but then usually I find that I have ideas that like last for a year or more and once they last a year I'm like I have I have to make this like I'm still thinking about it a year later so like mm -hmm. this, I have to, you know, physically manifest this thought and see what comes out. Yeah, I like, I think that that's such a, a nice and natural way to kind of approach a concept for something you're working on. I remember uh, Amy and I did like a little side episode a uh, long time ago. Now it feels like, uh, <laughs> but we kind of asked people, what do you, you know, what do you do when you're like, I think not feeling it? Or where do you go for inspiration or something like that? And one of the respondents, um, Doug Sanders, he makes these little tiny carvings. And he was saying, like, he'll get caught up in this manic state of inspiration. But now he's done it enough to where he knows, like, maybe I should just write it down. I'll mull it over. And, like, if it's actually a good idea, it'll remain a good idea for however long I wait. <laughs> exactly. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I always wonder, though, what it, what it is, like, why do those things stick? And uh, I don't have like the answer per se, but oftentimes I think it's just um, when you can't reconcile what you're thinking about in your head, like you can't figure it out. Uh, I think that's for me, like why I have to make it. Cause mm -hmm. then when it becomes physical, then it's almost like a different perspective on that idea or thought. And mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes it, well, hopefully if it's successful, it's, it's enough to kind of convey um, those thoughts and ideas. Yeah. Hmm. So can you talk a little about, um, a little bit about the materials that you're using in your work? So the metals I choose to use, uh, are considered aerospace materials, titanium and niobium. Hmm. Um, they're related on the periodic table. Uh, but 
titanium is a really fantastic material because it uh, it works well for jewelry um, because it's like biocompatible. It's actually a material that gets implanted into people's bodies if they need, you know, like a repl- like a hip replacement or something. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So yeah, it doesn't react um, very much, if at all, with um, like the human body. So on the outside, it's very rare to have any kind of reaction to it. So it's practical that way. Um, but it's also extremely lightweight and strong. So you can make really thin forms that weigh almost nothing, or you can make really thick forms that would weigh as much, um, as say like something made out of gold that was much thinner. So you can make Mm. larger scale pieces that feel very comfortable, uh, on the body. And niobium is, uh, similar in appearance. It's like a grayish metal, but it um you can anodize it a little bit easier than titanium and anodizing is a process where you can add these vibrant colors to the metal and that's really um intriguing to me because it relates to some of like the nebulas and stuff you might see in the night sky mm-hmm. um, oh yeah and then even meteorite itself uh is the cores iron and um uh nickel generally so you can you can even work with that uh, sometimes uh, it depends on the format. You know, you can get these like slices of it that you can actually um, manipulate if you want. Um, and then there's even small little chunks. Those ones I usually don't um, try and form or do anything with because uh, wow. I like them as is. But yeah, they're actual metal from space that huh. you know makes it here, and they're material that can be used. So those are probably the most common materials and then i am a trained goldsmith as well so i often use gold and silver at times in combination with those materials um for for different reasons but it's more malleable so if i need to like say put a rivet in a piece i'll often choose like those softer metals uh to form the rivet to hold the piece together yeah i was gonna i was this is awesome i was gonna ask like do you kind of have like do those metals aside from their you know, functional aspects, like what you're talking about, the titanium, you know, being hard and lightweight or gold being soft and heavy. Um, is there any kind of like, I guess, meaning to you personally behind those, those metals as well? Like, is there kind of like a, like a metallic vocabulary of like symbolism? <laughs> or Jeez, that was like the most art words I've ever said. Uh, <laughs> you sounded really good. <laughs> um uh, no i think it's just materials that you know relate um to me specifically in terms of like what i'm comfortable using and Mm -hmm. and how it it relates to again like my experiences so like the titanium and niobium used um in stuff that goes to build objects that go out into space to explore space that to me is like the connection that Mm -hmm. Um, it's really intriguing, but I'm also someone who loves exploring and experimenting. So that's even how I came across those materials to begin with. And, um, I just realized they're really different. Um, they're similar and different to some of the softer metals. Um, they're a little, you know, harder to work with in terms of it being stiff and you can't do certain processes to them, but that oftentimes just, uh, makes you think about building objects differently, which I think is, is like a really nice exercise and, I, I like problem solving too. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It just, uh, I would say like gold and silver, I feel very comfortable, like knowing what I can and can't do with it. And mm-hmm. it's pretty, they're pretty versatile metals. Um, and titanium, titanium and niobium are 
uh, you have to be a little bit more strategic with. And I actually enjoy that. Is titanium brittle at all? Like, I'm just sort of wondering, like, I know very little about how to work with metals and, but I do have like a little bit of an idea. Um, so I'm just curious, like, is it, is it kind of a harder thing to work with? Like we were talking with, uh, David Clemens earlier and he was talking about how much he liked pewter cause it was so malleable and, mm. and things like that. But, uh, I'm just curious about titanium cause I've not heard of many people using that as a material. Is that a rare thing to do? I think it's maybe happening a little bit more now, mm -hmm. but it, yeah, it's not, it's not like, um, a lot of the other metals in terms of, you know, popularity, I would say, you know, mm -hmm. like silver, mm -hmm. gold, copper, brass, um, those are probably, you know, the most common. Um, but I would almost say, yeah, uh, what you're referring to with David Clemens and pewter, titanium's almost on the opposite end of that spectrum. Like pewter mm -hmm. is, you can bend it literally with your fingers and, you know, mm -hmm. manipulate it. And, um, it's, it's just very easy to not, I don't know if it's easy. It's, it's just, uh, you can form it. It's more malleable and mm -hmm. titanium is just, it's very stiff and springy. So, mm. uh, it, and you can't solder it in a normal studio environment. Uh, so you have to like, I have this like micro TIG welder I use to, oh, cool. to wow. weld pieces together. Wow. Um, so yeah, you do have to think of it differently. And it's funny, like, I think it just gets this like bad rap in terms of it's just so hard to work with that I think that turns a lot of people off, but there's actually several grades of titanium. So when you had mentioned, you know, or asked if it's brittle, uh, it certainly is when you get into these higher grades of titanium. Hmm. Um, uh, so like grade, I think it's like uh, um, grade grade one through five. Um, there's like commercially pure titanium, basically that has like the least amount of alloys in it. And that's the one that's most easy to uh, manipulate. And then uh, once that scale goes up, then there's more alloys that really stiffen it up and make it super hard. So actually once you get past um, like one or two on that scale, it gets really, really hard to work with where you're, hmm. you're almost like grinding it versus filing it and cutting it. You have wow. to start thinking of using like abrasives in a different way. So I, I don't generally go that route because it's just so hard to work with. So I, I um, stay with like the commercially pure um, alloys. And it actually, it's like almost like a, for someone who is a metalsmith, I guess I would relate it closely to like a half hard brass or something in terms of how hard it is. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's stiff, but it's workable. And you can use pretty much typical um, metalworking tools on it. I don't really do a good job of thinking outside the box of what mm. metals you could and should, I guess, in quote, many quotation marks around should uh, use in like a piece of jewelry or something like that. So mm. it's kind of like rocking my world in that way. Um, <laughs> of just like, oh, yeah, like just do what you need to do to to, to do what you need to do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and there's all those like trials and errors that, you know, they don't experiments that don't necessarily amount to something later it, other than like, maybe it's a dead end and then you choose to go a different route. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, oftentimes you realize like, you know, there's stuff out there that you haven't tried working with that 
can be very surprising and actually inform what you might make, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and while we're on the materials deep dive, how could you just talk a little bit more about meteorite? Because I think that's like the coolest thing ever, but it also <laughs> seems like it would be so variable depending on like what little nugget or slice of meteorite that you're working with. It very much is. Yeah. Um, so I guess what I consider and probably a lot of um, makers, whoever would be using that in the jewelry world would probably consider as like the ideal meteorite material would be um, a, a Gibeon meteorite, which is um, it's just a specific meteorite um, that hit earth that has these properties that are really resistant to oxidation uh, or rusting. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the other ones that are out there, they can rust a lot easier, but yeah, even with, even with those or any, any piece of meteorite, you don't know exactly what you're working with. Um, cause there's all these different, uh, metals that are kind of, you know, interlaced into one another. And you don't know if you're going to hit a part that has like an impurity in it or, right. yeah. um, so you, that's the other part, right? So you, uh, meteorite costs, they used to be pretty cheap when I first bought them like 15 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, but now they're really expensive. And so when you spend that amount of money on something, you know, it's like, do you, I really want to roll the dice and see what happens or do Mm -hmm. I want to appreciate it for what it is? And I think how I've generally, uh, been using it is, you know, I know it, it cuts well and I know if I run into a portion of it that is hard to cut through i i have methods of getting through that part Mm -hmm. um and so i love my one of my favorite like like visually when i look at them i think it so these larger slices of meteorite where you can see like a a pattern on it like um, almost like a grain exactly yeah it's Mm -hmm. almost like um um the word's escaping me right now but like in industry there's uh like that galvanized i think like finish or Uh it's almost like similar to that i think um Mm -hmm. but then you know on the edge of these slices you get uh like the exposed like the exterior of the meteorite that you know as it was coming down to earth was like burning up i assume and that's like what's left it's like this scorched like it's almost like burnt toast on the edge right like it's (laughs) (laughs) um but that edge is like it's really organic and beautiful and and so i like having like that exposed raw edge with some of the other pattern. And I have some pieces where I've like implemented it that way. Um, but I'm not like physically I have, but I, in those pieces, I'm not like physically like trying to bend it or anything. Mm-hmm. Cause that's when the, you know, the real risk um, enters into the equation and you don't know how it's going to respond. Yeah. That makes sense. Brian and I put some ax heads on their handles a couple months ago. He sharpened the heads. I watched in amazement. We took the axe handle wedge and wedged it right in there with some nifty tricks Brian knew, which I can't remember. And I haven't used that axe since. One, because none of my wood is small or dry enough. And two, if you look at the mangled front rubber of my mall's handle, its condition probably equates to 15 broken wooden handles. I've needed a lot of practice regarding aim, and I got a lot of practice over the past year and a half. 
I would have been even more miserable than we all already were if I hadn't had an axe and wood to chop during 2020. I chopped and burned my way through a lot of trauma, some not even related to the year's obvious events. I'd go as far to say axes have a Stockholm Syndrome hold on me. I'm held captive by what they've enabled for human beings over the centuries, and I trust them to take care of me when I need to work with wood in the activity of chopping, which not only provides a product for use, but also provides functions bringing me peace of mind and a meditative exercise of my body, and warmth, and housing, and spoons, and furniture, and more. Julia Kalthoff is based in Stockholm, Sweden, and her axes will captivate you. Her methods are beyond the steel wedge, and she's even spoken on the big stage at a conference run by some guy named Ted. Her website has a picture of her carving a log, surrounded by mounds and mounds of chopped wood on a sunny day. I thought I was going to pass out from delight. Join us next episode and listen to her carve a better picture of what she does. Do you own any particular objects that speak to your personal mythology? Um, heavy question alert. That was a heavy question alert. <laughs> I was looking at your website. <laughs> right. I, that's an intriguing like personal mythology. I think I was thinking about that for a long time, what that means. I'm still thinking about it, actually. But um, <laughs> I feel like what I mean by that is I feel like everyone must have these in their lives, right? These objects that, um, you know, it looks like an ordinary object, right? Like it's a cup or a hammer or something like that. And, mm-hmm. um, what it's not just that though, to like sometimes, right? Like I have these tools that I inherited from my Pat Pat, my grandfather, um, in PA, mm-hmm. he was an auto mechanic and he, uh, used to fish stuff out of the trash. I apparently, and fix these tools. And, um, when he passed, I got to, I got, you know, a handful of his tools and this piece of like old railroad track that was work hardened. So it's made this like excellent anvil I use in my studio. Cool. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so these objects, right. That like they have a history and uh, they mean a lot to me. And, you know, it's just the fact that like, I know my grandfather worked with these tools directly. I'm working with them. My dad worked with them oftentimes uh, he worked with his hands. Um, he did more like woodworking, but mm-hmm. you know, these tools are being passed down. And even though, you know, someone maybe had thrown one of these tools away at some point, like they've now made it to me intact or fixed mm-hmm. and, uh, they just have a whole lot more meaning. Um, mm-hmm. and then even just something as, uh, you know, simple, like, um, my granny in PA as well, she gave me a music box. Or, or when she passed, I, I got a music box from her that I, I just, I really love. Um, and it's not, you know, like a particularly amazing music box, I don't think, but it's, um, I don't know. I just cherish it. It's so I think that's what I mean by personal mythology. It's just, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I think about that a lot when I'm making too, especially with there's certain series of work that I would say, uh, I, they kind of feature that, um, or that idea. Uh, like the Constellation series, this kinetic series I, I had worked on. Um, so yeah, it's something I'm, I'm just 
thinking about a lot and it's been been a few years actually i still think about it all the time when i'm making hmm. do you see um like the jewelry you make as being part of other people's like sort of contributing to other people's personal mythologies at all like hmm. um like almost like you provide the tool you know that that you got from your grandfather or something like that for someone else for like the important moments for them yeah, I would say, you know, the most um, directly related uh, thing that I do that, that, um, to that, to that, I guess, would be um, when I make pieces, you know, like a wedding ring, you know, bridal jewelry mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. pieces that um, when people are getting married, you know, it's a special moment for them. And it's really an honor to be asked to make a piece for that. And, um, I think hopefully, you know, if it's a successful piece that does become part of that, um, event and something that obviously you, you would wear the rest of your life and, uh, hopefully, and, and that, um, you know, has that kind of meaning, uh, or symbolism, uh, as you wear it. But I, outside of that, um, uh, I mean, I feel like I've probably made pieces that were really specific to, like a particular client, but I'm not, I'm not thinking of any like right off the top of my head at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But that is a really like, that's a really good question. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That's not like the, probably the answer you want, but. <laughs> oh no, no, no. I, I don't have i uh, I'm not guiding the, the answers. I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah. Then I was thinking like, if you go in the opposite direction, it's like, you're working within uh, the confines, although I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that ast astronomy is like confining. <laughs> you're you're working within the confines of like astronomical bodies, you know. So then, if you're looking in the opposite direction from like personal mythology to like something really huge as as far as mythology is concerned, like where we're from or we came from the big bang or something like that. And you're kind of like kind of in the middle of those two mythologies, like a, like a cosmic mythology and a personal mythology sort of meeting in your work. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. You're um, uh, making me think of uh, there is a particular set of rings I made and this might even this, I think I was going to maybe bring up in a future question, but um that you guys, I think, uh, had prepared, but, mm -hmm. um, there's these, uh, this set of armillary rings I made in the past. Uh, I think oh, I originally, Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to have to clue me in. <laughs> so uh, this was, I think 15 years ago, roughly. Um, I had a couple, uh, that approached me that were, they're both scientists and they, um, wanted, a piece of jewelry, I think that maybe referenced, you know, their profession and, um, and so they had an image of this like really old ring from like the 17th century that, uh, it's basically like, if you trying to think of how I can describe it, but basically if you had, um, like three or three rings kind of mm -hmm. connected mm -hmm. and they, when they were like all pulled open, they would create this like 3d sphere like a oh yeah almost like an armature of a sphere and then when it would mm -hmm. close it would become this um like more simplified 
band that you'd wear as a, a typical ring. Mm -hmm. um, but they, they had brought that in, I remember, and uh, I was talking to them about it, and they really wanted me to make something that like that. And I really had no reference point other than that image. And I didn't, I remember just thinking like, I'm really excited about doing this potentially because I, I think about, you know, making kinetic or movable pieces a lot and mm. it relates to astronomy and it's like hitting all the marks basically for me. Right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. But, but at the same time, I'm like, this is really challenging. Like, I don't know. I almost, part of me was like, don't take this on cause it's going to be really hard to do and it, or it might not even work out. Mm -hmm. um, but I just took, a big gulp and said, yes. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, I can remember thinking about these, how I'm going to construct these rings for, I don't know, at least a week or so. And I remember like laying in bed at night, just, you know, before going to bed, just like, okay, well, if I, if I create this part and like, it has this shape to it, like, how's that going to connect to this other part? And basically it became this, like a puzzle, like a, real life puzzle that I had to construct. Yeah. And especially that tiny too. Exactly. Right. So once you get into making pieces that are that small, that have a kinetic element, there's like almost no margin for error, right? Cause there's like the tolerances are so, are so tight and you don't want mm -hmm. this big bulky ring. You want something that feels comfortable. It's very practical, but also, mm -hmm. you know, uh, features like that element or that movement to it. So anyways, I, uh, yeah, I, I, ended up working it out the 3d design in CAD and it, it looked very different than the, the image that they provided. Um, but it, I feel like it turned out like I, it turned out well, I feel like, and it became part of the ceremony. So this is where I think, you know, maybe it connects to your original question is like they, they, um, my understanding is they brought them, the ring bearer brought them up, uh, I think on like two pillows or a single pillow, like opened up as these the spheres and then um, brought them to the bride and groom and um, folded them up, put them on their fingers. So the object themselves were, it had like a performance element, I guess, to it in terms of, yeah. you know, the, um, the wedding. Mm -hmm. And so those particular pieces really kind of, like personal mythology. I, I don't know if it falls into that camp for them necessarily, but I feel like they were extra special pieces for me and hopefully for them as well. Mm -hmm. And there, there'll be pieces I always will remember, you know, making, and I still make them now, but um, in different variations, but um, the original, you know, set was like, they're the originals, right? So they're like the ones yeah. I always think about. Mm -hmm. Like the, that sort of like landmark achievement or whatever. Right. Well, and I will say too that when um, I saw your slides, when um, actually all three of us were at Penland at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, oh. <laughs> and during your slide presentation, you showed a video clip. Amy, we'll try to put it on our Instagram, I think, because okay. uh, to share it with people so they can see, because it was like mm -hmm. during that slide presentation, people just started clapping at the end of the yeah, last clip. Yeah, I remember that. Like the, uh, you remember that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it was, yeah, it was just, I mean, not even getting to see it in real life, but just <laughs> looking at the, the construction of, of, like, recognizing what 
how much I don't understand of what went into <laughs> making that happen was like the same feeling I got when I saw a picture of Hubble Deep Space for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> wow, thank you. That's a that's a compliment. Hubble, I mean, Hubble is like has some of the most beautiful images ever made. I feel like it's oh, crazy. Yeah, I, I love Hubble. I love all those images. I could look at them forever. Yeah. So this this all might lead into like which of your pieces are you most proud of and why? Yeah. So those those are definitely um, in terms of jewelry, mm-hmm. um, in terms of commission jewelry. Those would those would be the ones. Those are like mm-hmm. the an achievement for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had this other uh, set of like pins or brooches that I made based off of the quote unquote great American eclipse of 2017, the mm-hmm. solar eclipse. Those are really special to me because they just, uh, they, when, when I made them, I felt like I had, there was like no obstacles. Like I didn't run into any, there's nothing that like slowed me down. It just, uh, they came right out and it just, um, it's, I feel like that's so rare. Like I always run into like some little hiccup along the way. Mm-hmm. And these were three pieces uh, and I didn't have it with any of them. And it also connected to me actually planning to go out there and document that event, the solar eclipse, which was absolutely mind blowing. Um, and I, uh, those pieces, I, I wanted to make them because I felt like when I was documenting everything, uh, that eclipse, you know, photographing and, um, I, you know, I feel like I got like good images, but you can't capture like the feeling of what's happening. You know, it was like a bright sunny day and it was, I don't know, like 80 or 90 degrees. And then when the moon, you know, shifted in front of the sun, uh, when the eclipse actually happened, I felt like the temperature dropped. It must be like 30 degrees or so. And it got Mm -hmm. much cooler. And then the quality of light turned like this weird bluish tint. And I like remember looking Mm -hmm. around for a minute and just being like, where am I on earth? Like this is weird. (laughs) (laughs) And all the birds shut up. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, and then I saw people with images like the, uh, I think like the shadows, there's like, I don't remember what they call them, like snakes or something like in the shadows, there's like Mm -hmm. this weird thing that, um, phenomena that would happen. But yeah, it's just, it was like just absolutely, uh, mind blowing. And, when I got back to my studio, that was a moment where I just was like, I have to make something based off of this or like what I experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it was just so moving. And, and like I said, those pieces that I got in my studio, I started making them. Uh, I didn't run into any like hiccups along the way. And, uh, and they came out like, there's like an almost, almost like a purity to them in terms of mm-hmm. like my idea and thought and how they came out that I think is what, why they're so special to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, those, those are, uh, I think I did send you guys an image too. There's like three of them together that kind of okay. like share similar forms and, um, they can be worn all together or individually. Actually, they're all going to be worn individually because they were sold to different people, but, oh. um, <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, they at one point could be reunited for a time, maybe in a show. I don't know. <laughs> maybe for the next solar eclipse. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's one coming up, actually. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> well, actually, this kind of, you you sort of talking about these different types of projects, be they commissions or something that sort of like just comes from within, um, kind of, 
from a more practical, I guess, like business or practice standpoint, um, how do you kind of balance those different uh, modes of your of your business um, in terms of like commission work versus you know just doing something on spec that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I I love working with metal. Just it's really that simple. So I don't get hung up. Uh, like if I'm doing something, I'm not that, you know, maybe to someone else, they wouldn't be as thrilled about doing like, I really enjoy doing something like if someone, some people will hire me sometimes to do, do like, I don't know, stone setting or hand engraving <clears throat> and it's in my wheelhouse and it's not necessarily stone setting, I guess is in my work, but like engravings, you don't readily see it in my work, but um, just the act of doing that process, I, I really enjoy. So that's why I continue to, to do it. Um, and so I think, uh, in relation to like, um, making studio work versus commissions, I feel like they are linked for me because there's a local gallery, uh, for cherry that I, um, sell my work through. And, um, I have a lot of pieces that I've made for, you know, in particular, like particular shows, uh, that then someone will see, um, a client or customer and they'll, they'll like it, but maybe it either won't fit them or there's just something they want tweaked on it. And mm. then that becomes a commission. And I have no problem doing that as long as it's not like compromising, like the original idea in a way that I'm not, you know, thrilled about, I guess, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I've never really had that, you know, I think all the requests have been very reasonable. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I think those work together. Uh, and I even once in a while do, uh, custom jewelry, which I think can be confused with commission. Um, I, I think of them as something different. Like I think of commission jewelry as, you know, someone knows you, your aesthetic as an artist and they want a piece that, you know, has that in it. And so it's more or less like tweaking certain elements for that particular client. Whereas custom work could be like totally outside of like my design aesthetic I mean, it never will be totally outside, I guess, because I'm still making it. But, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you know, in terms of like, you know, astronomy or certain materials I might typically use for my own work, you know, I might, you know, use just traditional materials like gold or silver or platinum, stuff like that. Huh. So, yeah, I, I, um, I'm pretty open to stuff, but um, it is really hard actually sometimes juggling, you know, time management and balance in terms of like, you know, do you have a show upcoming? And if you do, like, I have to make sure like I don't take on certain projects while I'm preparing work for that show. So, you know, it's kind of, maybe it's, I assume other artists must experience this, you know, like you're, you have different forms of income and um, just managing all of that can be challenging, you know, in its own way. But like I said, it really just comes down to the material for me. I, I just absolutely love metal as a material. And, and I think that's why I ex- take on so many different projects. Neat. And yeah, and I guess too, you never know, like, even if that project isn't in your wheelhouse, what you might get from it that you can incorporate into your wheelhouse. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes it stretches you, right? Like, like it's, there's processes that I am familiar with, but I don't, feel like I'm necessarily like I excel at or something. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it pushes you to learn a little bit more about a particular process and then you can add that to your, you know, toolbox, so to speak. And 
um, and then use that down the road for something else. Cool. Yeah. Come work at the John C. Campbell Folk School. The Folk School is hiring for a variety of positions, including deputy director, studio coordinator in clay, and studio coordinator in natural fibers. For more information on job descriptions and how to apply, visit folkschool.org under the Employment Opportunities tab. North House Folk School teaches traditional craft on the shores of Lake Superior. On-campus and online courses through early 2022 are now open for registration. The weekend of October 22nd through the 24th is Family Weekend at the Folk School a chance to share the joy of learning with curious young ones. From cooking to fiber arts, woodworking to blacksmithing, there is a skill to learn for everyone. Classes require registration ahead of time, but drop-in activities are free and require no pre-registration. Visit northhouse.org to check out all of the classes and learn more. Have you had any personal transformations? through your metalworking? Um, I guess I would maybe just say, broadly speaking, I mean, metalworking itself, I feel like has been transformative, uh, like in terms of kind of finding myself as of just a person or a human or whatever in mm-hmm. uh, my career. And um, I feel like it was the first material I used that it just, I just agreed with. Like it had the right amount of stubbornness to it that um, <laughs> I enjoyed. Like, you know, it's hard to move, but once you moved it, it would stay put. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think of my wife who studied ceramics and I've tried that and I'm terrible at it. Like it just doesn't work for me, right? It's like mm-hmm. not like the way I think and the way I build, I- I've realized like metal just works very mm-hmm. well. So that's why it's, you know, a medium that I just have continued to work with and so yeah, I would say in that sense, it's been transformative. Like, uh, it's it's always like the foundation of what I'm building, even if I make things with wood in it, for instance, or like other materials. Metal's always the um, foundation to that. So, what is it about it that satisfies you? Like, um, I know you just touched on like it's staying put when it's put somewhere. <laughs> uh, is there yeah. anything else about it? Like about the process maybe that, that you really feel kind of complements your personality? Yeah, it's, yeah, I think where we really get along is uh, there's just, I'm kind of like a, in some ways, a, like a technical junkie, like I just learning new processes and um, getting better at the ones that I've, already acquired and uh, there's always more to learn and I feel like metal smithing or metal working just it's endless really and and I've realized I joke about this with other metal artists but I think there's some truth to it like you know even if you tried to learn like every process out there by the time you got to the last one you would have forgotten the first ones you learned because it, <laughs> it takes so much time <laughs> so you can't it's like it's impossible to be a master at every process right i mean just there's mm-hmm. too much involved in every process um and i think that uh it's just really fun to always be able to switch it up and i think once you create like a um like a vocabulary like in terms of like how you build within your medium or in this case metals um mm-hmm. you can start piecing 
together different processes like uh, so that you can do a, uh, a new process that you might not have done before. So mm-hmm. like once you like understand it, I think it like you can really open it up and learn more and more. And um, so I think there's just constant challenges with it in terms of like you can push it further. Like actually the work I'm trying to, I'm doing in titanium and niobium, I'm consciously trying to, to do things that like I haven't done before and trying to push it, push things in a direction where like, you know, I haven't seen this or I, I haven't personally done this particular process to these materials and just seeing where it can go. And, and um, I think that's just really exciting and satisfying for me to see, see that where it ends up. And it's also just a beautiful material. I mean, (laughs) that's like, I'm biased, of course, but um, (laughs) yeah, I just, I just, uh, metal to me, I love the look of it. Um, Whether it's shiny or matte, actually, I prefer matte generally, but because you see like the raw metal itself, what it Mm -hmm. looks like, the real color of it. Hmm. But, um, but yeah, it's just uh, visually, it's, it's very appealing to me. So part of the satisfaction has been the challenge. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> so um, have you had any like struggles with metalworking that you maybe you're still working through or you're um, were surprised by? Any struggles? Um, challenge in a very broad sense, not just like mm-hmm. titanium's hard. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... Uh, I mean, definitely one of the biggest challenges, which is part me and part metalworking in general is, um, so metalworking is, I would say based on the other mediums I've explored in the past, it feels like it takes longer, um, Mm. for the end result, you know, like I feel Mm. like when I build something, for instance, out of wood, um, I can build it much quicker, um, Mm -hmm. than in metal. Obviously they look very different. Um, but so I think metal just it's it can be very time consuming, uh, and then in addition to that, especially when I first started out, I feel like I wasn't a fast metal worker, and mm-hmm. I would say now like maybe I'm like average or something. I mean, mm-hmm. within like general metal working processes, like I have my own processes which I'm probably like faster at because I do them a lot, but um, it, it is really hard in terms of like time management, honestly, like of trying to, you know plan all these projects and have them fit within a specific time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like an ongoing constant challenge, mm-hmm. uh, actually. Hmm. Um, yeah. Throw a kid in but, the mix too. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then COVID and like, you know, yeah. all this stuff. There's a yeah. lot. <laughs> a lot going on. Yeah. Um, who are some of the other metalsmiths that you admire? And then maybe some somebody outside of metal, you know? Anybody? Sure. Galileo. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, any astronomer, I think that has kind of like laid the groundwork for what we understand, you know, that we see in the night sky, like anything like that, of course, outside of metals, I mm-hmm. definitely admire. Um, I'd say within metals, I, you know, I've been asked this question a few times before, and it, it's actually pretty hard for me to answer. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know particularly why, but um, I'd say early on, uh, there's an artist, I don't know if either of you are familiar with, uh, John Paul Miller. No. no I don't so, think so he's a, a jewelry artist who, uh, I think he's partly responsible for like the, um, 
like the modern version of granulation. Uh, that's oh. a particular process in, in the metals world where you like fuse small bits of metal to the surface of metal without using any kind of solder or anything like that. Uh, so it's and, just like uh, heating it and they like bond. Yeah. You heat it. Uh, there's like, well, there's a process, right? So that's the thing. It's almost, it, it was used in like ancient jewelry, but then mm. there was this big gap of time where no one did it and knew how to do it apparently. And um, he was someone who kind of rediscovered that. And I think like the sixties and seventies and, huh. um, and so his work is very intricate. Uh, with all these little pieces of metal, like granulation nowadays, I, I think is generally looked at as like these little beads on the surface of metal, yeah, like yeah. they're little gold beads. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he made pieces where there would even be like different shapes and cutouts uh, of metal that were really small. And he'd make these like sea creature forms with like, this stuff scattered all over the surface. And they're just, they're absolutely beautiful. And the amount of detail that he packs into a small, um, space is just it's it's incredible and it's what's also really interesting about it is that um it's you can look at a piece and know that it takes basically uh, a master or just an understanding of that technique it's so it's very technical and you can see that within the piece but then it's also very organic so it doesn't look like you know it doesn't look mechanical or something it looks like like very natural but you can tell it's also very technical. So I remember seeing his work when I was, you know, I guess being introduced to metal and just being blown away by it. And mm. then plus he was local at that time when I lived in Cleveland. Mm. And, um, and uh, he gave, he actually came out to our school and gave a workshop, which he had stopped doing, I guess, for, I think like a decade before that. And I think it was the last demo we ever gave. Um, wow. And yeah, I don't know. His work just really, from a jewelry standpoint and detail standpoint and technical standpoint, I guess, um, it was really just amazing to me. And, um, and then I would say in terms of sculpture, I have to definitely, you know, mention Arthur Ganson. He makes these mechanical, uh, pieces that they're made of steel wire oftentimes, most of the time. And, um, they look like they, are about to fall apart at any given moment. Like they don't look like they should work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and they're so, yeah, they look, it looks very imprecise, but at the same time, they're absolutely perfectly built. And, um, and so they're oftentimes they're hand cranked or they're, I guess at times there could be like a little motor, but usually they're hand cranked. And um, they make these, like these sounds that, you know, just, if you can imagine like metal, like, jangling around and just not you know if you imagine like two gears for instance like meshing together perfectly like in a clock this is not mm-hmm. that this is like <laughs> <laughs> this is like little like taps of metal and you're it just sounds like what is going on um, <laughs> but then you see his pieces and they like man they're they're so beautiful like they the way they function um and they're very humorous like he has a one piece that just jumps out is like he has a he has a wishbone that um he has like this giant it looks like a cart almost attached to the back of it with these long wires and um so you have the wishbone and then you have this like mechanical structure that it's tethered to in the back with like wheels i think that are attached to it and it, it's really complicated the back the port part in the back um but basically it takes all of that those mechanical components to make the wishbone walk 
you know, like one leg in front of the other, almost looks no way. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, it's absolutely amazing. And, um, and that's just like one of his pieces. He, he has so many like that. Um, (laughs) it's definitely a rabbit hole situation. At least it was for me when I first learned about them. <laughs> there goes my afternoon. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah, and and I guess like uh, one thing that's just really cool about that is I got to introduce them at a at a symposium out here, which was like mind blowing because it's like meeting one of your like heroes as an artist, you know, mm-hmm. and, a member uh, of your personal pantheon of personal mythology. <laughs> yeah, sure. <Exactly>. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but that was just a really cool moment. And, uh, I got an autographed DVD by him, by the way. So oh, cool. I, what? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I actually bought the DVD at the MIT bookstore. That's where his work was on display. He was like a resident artist there for mm-hmm. a number of years. It's just I gets better that. and better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bought that like, I don't know, two decades ago. And, um, and then I, this, when he came to speak at a symposium out here in Seattle, um, that was just a few years ago and I brought it. I remember I brought it up to the podium and I felt like I embarrassed myself in front of everyone, <laughs> but I was like, I don't care. This is awesome. He's going to, hopefully he'll sign it. He did, so. That's awesome. <laughs> That's just the do best. It. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, well. it's cool. I'm excited about it. Well, so now the question is, is like the DVD framed on a wall since like DVDs aren't really used very often or is it still like on standby next to your old like DVD player? Well, yeah, I don't have my DVD player out. It's more like an object now. Like I don't, you know what I mean? It's like it's just uh-huh. a cherished object I have. Yeah, right, yeah. right. I love yeah. that. <laughs> um, uh, and then, you know, I've had like several other like friends and artists that I feel like have influenced me, even like my professors in undergrad. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have to give them so much credit for just, they really complemented each other well. Like one one um, had a background in CAD modeling and using computers to build objects. Mm-hmm. And then the other worked more hands-on, like direct fabrication and uh, was uh, had just such a great attention to detail. And I feel like between those two, like I had such a good foundation um, in hindsight. Yeah, I just think about that a lot. Like I really just, I started off like in a really great place with metalworking and I felt like it was just the right place at the right time for me. And so, um, yeah, Matthew Harn and Kathy Biscavich, that those are their names. And yeah, they've, they really like helped me out when I was a young artist. Mm-hmm. And then even locally, um, someone that comes to mind, Andy Cooperman, um, he's a metal artist out here who, I mean, I'm not trying to pitch him for the show, but he would be great. <laughs> I bet. Um, cool. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, he's been really helpful in terms of just what, you know, when I got, done with grad school i felt like he really has like helped me along like early on um in the community and just uh, been a good friend too along the along the way so mm-hmm. i don't know i admire different you know makers for different reasons i guess but all of yeah. those people have really played a role in uh i guess who i am right now good what inspires you outside of jewelry and metalworking and astronomy Clock making, oh. um, yeah, I, uh, concept of time like that relates, I guess, to astronomy though, and and also to mm-hmm. clock making, of course. Some of like the old astronomical uh, models that were made, or you know, um, things that were used to kind of like demonstrate like how 
different objects, you know, revolve around one another in space, for instance, um, you know, mm-hmm. clock making parts are often involved with those objects that were made. Um, then things like, you know, real life experiences, just like my day to day, um, skateboarding adventures. Um, I don't know, like it all finds its way in to, um, <laughs> the work, I guess, in one form or another, like my kid the other day, um, we, he had this, just a box, like nothing special, just a box that, you know, I, we had something that was shipped to us and, uh, he, he likes to build ramps cause he had monster <laughs> trucks and, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, and matchbox cars. So, uh, he made this like quote unquote ramp, although it was like this structure that had like all, like the box was like coming out in all these different directions and different angles. And it just was like this really interesting form. And I just remember I took a photograph of it and I'm like, that's just like an interesting object. And like mm-hmm. thinking that, you know, maybe that's something to explore, like with a different body of work, like maybe I can try and build in a similar way, like that, that box, however, that was manipulated because it turned out to like have like this visual interest to me. So, you know, huh. something as simple as that um, can find its way into the work too. Yeah. It'd be great to see like that before and after picture where it's just like that box and then like this finished piece of jewelry or, or like some <laughs> other kind of object. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That might actually happen if it becomes, yeah. If I actually make a piece based off of that construction method, then yeah, I, I, I'll save that image. And, you know, if I give a presentation, I'm sure I would like, yeah, double screen or double put both these <laughs> images up at once. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. I love that. So, Kirk, if someone wants to see more of your work, where can they find you? Uh, well, they can find uh, my work on my website, of course, which is just uh, kirklang.com. And then I would say Instagram would be the other place to look. And that has probably more like informal, I guess, in progress mm-hmm. um, images and videos of my work and also just of my life. You know, there's some mm-hmm. skateboarding clips on there and some other stuff, just uh, Kirk underscore Lang. That's it. Oh, good. Yeah. Sweet. Well, Kirk, thank you so, so much for, uh, you know, giving us some of your time and sharing about your work and process and, mm-hmm. and space, space, space. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, this was so, this is great guys. I really um, appreciate the invite and I'm yeah. um, just happy to share my process with everyone. Yeah, it's really great. Thanks so much. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation and also to everyone who has supported the show, whether financially or otherwise. A special thanks to Hape for joining us on Patreon and to John for your contribution through the website. Every contribution matters, both for helping us grow the podcast and raising money for craft scholarships. Also, thank you to our sponsors, North House Folk School in Minnesota, John C. Campbell Folk School in Western North Carolina, North Bennett Street School in Boston, Massachusetts, and our newest sponsor, Pocosin Arts School of Fine Craft in Eastern North Carolina near the Outer Banks. And a free way to support the show is to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we both really appreciate the feedback. If you'd like to see more images of guest work or stay up to date on other happenings like the class giveaway we did with John C. Campbell Folk School, Please follow us on Instagram at Cut the Craft Podcast. 
We'll also try to figure out some way to do giveaways without using Instagram in the future. So if you don't have that, (laughs) we're thinking of you. (laughs) Um, Right, right. But on that note, if you want to see more of our work, both of our accounts are linked in the bio of the podcast page. (laughs) And if you have any ideas for guests or any comments, you have questions, you can email us at cutthecraftpodcast at gmail.com. And even if you just want to say hi, we appreciate that too. Yeah. And as always, a huge thanks to Brad Vetter for your graphic design, to the High Divers and Luke Mitchell of the High Divers for your music and help with production, and to Justin Williams for writing those little poetic tidbits introducing our upcoming guests. Coming up next, we have an interview with Axe philosopher and maker Julia Kalthoff. So to get a glimpse into our conversation, here's a clip from the interview. Thanks again for joining us. See you next time. Okay, so the conclusion of this is that um, in the human evolutionary development, the most important factor are the technology. And among the technologies, the most important technology is the tool making. And Mm -hmm. of the tools, the Mm -hmm. most important tool is the axe. After that, you can't say anything like... <laughs> Do you feel it? It's incredible. Yeah.